Uh, at our house uh, recently, we've had some uh, chipmunk issues. Um, I knew things were not good when I started to see little uh, blue pieces of foam insulation kind of on the ground uh, outside uh, underneath the uh, siding. And this was confirmed when I actually got to see once uh, one of these uh, little uh, cheeky little beasts actually jumping up and managing to find its way up inside one of the corners of the insulation uh, or of the, the siding on our house. And, and then the last straw was when I opened the garage door one day and saw a, a flash of blue, brown, and uh, brown, black, and white. It would be interesting if it was blue, but it wasn't. Uh, this was a regular chipmunk, not a blue chipmunk. Uh, it, so this flash of, of uh, black, brown, I can't even say blue anymore, brown, black, and white, bear with me this morning, running under the car. Uh, and so I'm pretty good at procrastinating at this kind of thing, uh, kind of hoping that if I ignore it long enough, it'll just go away. But obviously, uh, I needed to deal with this problem soon. So I decided uh, I would borrow a trap from a friend, and I would uh, do what I could to get rid of this uh, little creature from our house. Uh, so of course, I had to start off by getting the thing out of my garage. So I got a broom, and I kind of got it out of there, and I set up the trap outside. And within half an hour, I had caught it. And this was great, right? I got the perpetrator, and now I'm going to administer justice. But now comes the uh, kind of embarrassing part of the story. I'll spare you all the details, but the short uh, story was my uh, mishandling of the trap led to the uh, escape of the offending chipmunk uh, rather quickly. Um, in my defense, I'll just say uh, I grew up in Alaska, and we didn't really deal with live traps. Um, we were much more uh, primitive in our uh, rodent control there. Uh, so what am I going to do, right? I, I've managed to trap the thing, and I've managed to lose the thing, it's still at large in my yard to continue to wreak havoc uh, on my house. So what on earth am I supposed to, there's no way it's ever going to go back in that trap, right? So I'm trying to think of what on earth I'm going to do uh, to get rid of this uh, pesky chipmunk, and I decide, well, I've got nothing better to do, so I'm just going to reset the trap for now. There's no way it's ever going to go back in there, but at least while I think about something else to do, at least I'll be passively, you know, in, in my mind, there's something going on over there. And of course, when I checked the trap again at night, it was empty. It wasn't uh, tripped or anything like that. I woke up the next morning. I barely even glanced over there just long enough to see that the trap was still set. Nothing had, had triggered it or anything like that. And so I went about my day trying to figure out what on earth I'm going to do. And then a couple hours later, I start hearing this chirping. I think, no, it, it can't be. And I walk over, and sure enough, the trap is closed. And I walk outside, and there's actually a chipmunk in the cage. I couldn't believe my eyes that it had actually gone back into that cage. Now this time, of course, I was much more careful. I managed to successfully remove him uh, from the premises and he's not been back. Uh, but the part that really amazes me is, is how it would actually not learn that lesson. Like it has gone into this wire metal cage and it has been trapped in there. It couldn't get out and, and somehow it managed to go back in that. I think, how dense can this be? It's just mind-boggling how it would go back into something that has just trapped it like that. But then, of course, you start to think about how small the brain on one of those things must be, and it's really not uh, that surprising. But then you start to think about it, and you realize that, that often you and I do the same thing. People sometimes have to learn the same lesson again and again and again. We make the same mistakes over and over again. We, too, are like that dense chipmunk, not learning that, hey, if I go there, that's going to be really bad. And the story that we have before us this morning is, is that kind of a story. Uh, in the book of Daniel here, we've had two big instances in the early chapter where God has shown Nebuchadnezzar, who's king of Babylon, how he is in control, how God is in control, even over this mighty king. 
In chapter 2, we saw uh, God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream, and he didn't understand what it was about, and, and God showed him through Daniel the interpretation of what that means. So at the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar sees that, that this is a great God. Daniel's God is a great God. He says this at the end of chapter 2, Surely your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. So he gets it at the end of chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, he sets up this giant gold image and tells everyone to bow down and worship it. Well, some of God's uh, people were being faithful. They weren't going to bow down to that, and so he was infuriated. He uh, sent them to their execution by throwing them into this blazing furnace. And then he sees that, that God actually protects them in the midst of that furnace. Not a, not a hair of their heads is touched. And so he pulls them out of the furnace, or they walk out of the furnace, rather. And again, he sees that this God is incredibly powerful. At the end of chapter 3, again, he gets it. No other God can save in this way. And yet, we're about to find out that Nebuchadnezzar still doesn't really get this God. He still really doesn't get that God is in control, and he is not. And so we're going to get one final lesson for King Nebuchadnezzar, that God is in control. The text that we're looking at today is Daniel chapter 4. We'll look at the whole chapter of Daniel 4. It's found on page 877 of the Pew Bible. So go ahead and turn there, Daniel 4, uh, page 877, if you're going to use a Pew Bible this morning. We're going to see uh, this story in um, three scenes. It's a really interesting, uh, fascinating story uh, that we're going to see. So three scenes here. In scene one, we see that God is going to give Nebuchadnezzar a warning. Before we get into the actual warning itself, Nebuchadnezzar is going to give us a little prelude of what's coming here. Verse one, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, let's just pause for a minute here because it's amazing that Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king of Babylon, is giving a testimony to how great the God of Israel is. He would be the, the last one that you would expect to give praise to Israel's God. But here it is. And we're about to see why he's giving praise to him. Here's what happened, beginning in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that they, all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong. Its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants on the earth. 
Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers, the holy ones, declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So the king has had this dream, and it's a very alarming dream. And in this time period, dreams were considered uh, important omens. They were one of the ways that, that you could um, kind of discern the future. They were uh, expected to be kind of communication from the gods. And so the king, of course, gathers all of the uh, interpreters, all of the advisors, and tries to find out what this is all about. And we've seen all this before. If you were here for chapter 2 of Daniel, this is the same kind of schema here. So the king knows what to do. When his own interpreters can't come up with an answer, he brings in Daniel. He is totally confident that this man, who has some kind of spiritual insight, some kind of spiritual power, will know what this dream is all about. And so Daniel comes to the king, and Nebuchadnezzar shares uh, what the dream is about. The great tree with universal power suddenly cut down because of the verdict of the Most High. Now, if you had a dream like this, and you believed that dreams were important omens, you would be concerned too, right? The dream is alarming, and we see from Daniel's reaction that the interpretation is going to be alarming as well. In verse 19, he doesn't even want to share what this dream means with the king. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Daniel doesn't even want to tell him what's going on here because he realizes that this is a really bad dream. But Nebuchadnezzar insists, and so he tells him this is what the dream means. Verse 20, The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves, abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty. And this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Now, for Nebuchadnezzar, obviously, this is not a good dream. On the one hand, it's uh, highlighting his greatness. He is this great tree at the center of the universe. It's visible from the ends of the earth. The, the creatures, the animals, they all find their refuge and, and strength in this tree. So it's, it's highlighting his strength. But, of course, at the same time, it's foretelling his downfall. He is about to be severely humbled. He's going to act like a wild animal driven away from human civilization and reduced to a beast-like state. Now, it is 
as a picture of God's grace that he is giving this warning to Nebuchadnezzar. And he's making very clear what this whole thing is about. We saw uh, the reason for this back in verse 17. It's so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. And it's confirmed again here in verse 25. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The point of this whole episode is that Nebuchadnezzar needs to know that there is a God who is in control and that he himself is not that God and that he is not the one who is ultimately in control. He needs to know that the Most High God, Daniel's God, is the one who really is sovereign over the entire earth. He is over every kingdom. He is over every king, and he gives kingdoms and dominion to anyone that he chooses. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar needs to be put in his place and understand that even though he thinks of himself as king of kings, sovereign over everything, all of that is under the the ultimate sovereignty of God. And Daniel has interpreted the dream, and now he's going to give a quick word of advice to the king. Verse 27, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. In other words, Daniel's saying, yes, this is a message from God. This is something that, that you need to heed. He's giving you a warning. He's giving you a chance to, to actually do something about this now before it's too late, before this actually happens. If you turn from your ways, if you do what's right, acknowledge that God is over you, turn from your sin, then maybe God will relent. So now Nebuchadnezzar is faced with a choice. He can heed the warning and he can heed the advice, acknowledging God, turning from his evil ways and and, and following God's path, or he can just ignore it and continue to live like he's always lived. It's like going to the doctor's office and and they sit you down for a little heart-to-heart. They've run uh, the the blood work and all this stuff and they sit you down and they say, well, listen, your cholesterol is high, you've got too much stress, you're not exercising, your blood pressure is high, If you continue to do what you're doing, you're going to have a heart attack. That's the path that you are on. What you need to do is to start exercising, to change your eating habits, to change your lifestyle, to find more stress reduction kind of a thing, and then maybe you'll be able to avert this disaster. See, we're faced with a choice, right? It's not a pleasant message to receive, but at least we're given a chance to do something about it. The message that Nebuchadnezzar has has received is not a good message. It's a crazy thing that's about to happen to him. But he's at least given a chance to do something about it now. Daniel doesn't say, if you turn, God will not do this. He says, if you turn, then it may be that your prosperity will continue. In other words, you have to throw yourself on the mercy of God and acknowledge that he is the one who's sovereign. Well, we're not left in suspense long over what Nebuchadnezzar does. We see very early on, verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. And so as we turn from scene one to scene two, we see now that the king is going to go crazy. Listen to what happens. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? So a year has passed now, and the king apparently feels secure. So if there had been any kind of initial uh, nominal change or any kind of fear or anything like that that he had uh, initially had after this warning, it's now gone. 
So he feels secure on his throne. He is the one who's ruling. He's up on his rooftop of his palace. He's looking out over the whole city of Babylon. And his pride begins to swell. Look at what I have built. Now it's worth noting that the king had really good reason to be proud. Babylon was really at the height of its glory and splendor under this uh, particular king. He had won great military victories, and then he had come back to his city and and built it to be a beautiful, majestic kind uh, of city. Under his rule, Babylon really became the the center of uh, world culture. So he created these beautiful hanging gardens that are considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And he had built this this massive miles and miles long wall around uh, the city, so thick that one of the ancient historians said that you could actually turn around a four-horse chariot on the top of that wall. That's how strong, that's how beautiful and impressive Babylon was under Nebuchadnezzar. For a contemporary example of the same kind of thing, you might think of the, the modern city of Dubai. Like, it's such a symbol of, of technology and money and commerce and, and human ability. It's a, it's a beautiful kind of a thing. Well, that's, that's Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. So, of course, as he looks over the city, he's proud of what he's been able to do. And, of course, in all of this, he's forgotten that aside from the allowance and enabling of the Most High God, he wouldn't have been able to do any of it. But he doesn't acknowledge Daniel's God. He doesn't acknowledge the Most High. He thinks that this is something he has accomplished in his own power. And having been warned and having ignored it, now God is going to teach him a lesson. Verse 31, Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. So the great king, the the architect of mighty, beautiful, impressive Babylon is reduced to an animal-like state. It's hard to imagine a more dramatic fall. And the picture, just thinking about this, is uh, bizarre. It's amazing to, to think that the strongest king in the entire earth is suddenly brought low and as acting like an animal, eating grass out in the fields, hair like feathers of an eagle, uh, nails like the claws of an eagle. But of course, this is exactly what God had said would happen, right? So we as readers are not at all surprised. Uh, For us, we say, well, this is really obvious. Why didn't he just turn and do what Daniel told him he should do? As, as a parent, I, I'm consistently surprised at how often this happens uh, in our household. We will give a warning to our kids, and our kids will ignore the warning, and then the consequences that we said would happen end up happening. So our, our two-year-old uh, is always doing this. He's uh, sitting up at the counter on a stool at lunchtime, and, and he'll do fine for a little while eating his food, but then all of a sudden he'll get a little bit squirrely, right? He's a two-year-old. And so he starts to stand up on his stool a little bit, or he starts to play around, spin a little bit. And of course, Emily and I will fear for his safety, uh, having experienced this uh, many times. And we will tell him, okay, stop playing around, sit still, or if you don't, you're going to fall and you're going to hurt yourself. So what does he do? For 10 seconds, he sits still and he does what he's supposed to do. When a, a second number 11 comes along, 
He starts playing again, and when second number 12 comes along, he, of course, falls off the chair and hurts himself and starts crying. And we want to say, what did you think was going to happen? I I told you this was going to happen. How could you not see this coming? It's very obvious. I've warned you, and you didn't heed the warning, and now it's happening. Of course, this is what was going to happen. I could see this coming a mile away, and yet he still went through it, right? And this is what's happening with Nebuchadnezzar. We as readers see this is the God who, is, who you are dealing with here. You've seen him with a fiery furnace. You've seen him with this previous dream. Why are you not paying attention to what this God has told you? You've gotten the warning, and yet he's so dense that he still fails to give acknowledgement to God, that God is the one who's in control. And so this leads us to the final scene. The lesson finally now is learned. Verse 34 At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. We saw throughout this whole chapter, three or four times, we see the reason for this whole episode. It is God teaching this king that God is the one who is in control. God is the one who is over every king and every kingdom on earth. He is the one who establishes every single king. God is the one true king. And so finally, Nebuchadnezzar has learned his lesson. He lifts his eyes to heaven. His sanity is restored, and he praises God and proclaims what is true. He is the one who has an eternal kingdom. He is the one whose dominion lasts from generation to generation. It's a a repetition of what he had said at the beginning of the chapter in verses 1 through 3. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. So it took three really big lessons. God intervening supernaturally in amazing ways three distinct times. But finally, Nebuchadnezzar gets it. He's not in control. God is the one who is in control. God is the one who is the true king. So the main lesson of this whole chapter is this. It's, it's God is in control over all of the kingdoms on earth. And we see this confirmed throughout the Bible. We see it very clearly in the New Testament as well. Paul, running to the church in Rome, of all places, is able to tell them in chapter 13, verse 1, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. It's a recitation of the same lesson we just learned. God is in control over all kingdoms on earth. There is no kingdom apart from the allowance and establishment of God himself. Now this is uh, presented here in the book of Daniel as a positive message. This is a book that's written to give uh, comfort and hope to people who are living in a difficult situation. They had lost their independence as a country and they were now living in a foreign land in exile under foreign rule. And so this story is one of a whole series of story, st- stories that's designed to give God's people hope in the midst of exile. 
And it does that, it gives hope by showing that God is the one who is in control. But if we're really going to see why this is good news, we have to address a difficulty that is presented here. See, Romans 13 confirms what Daniel 4 teaches. God is in control over all kingdoms. He gives dominion to the ones that he chooses. So there is no king or no kingdom apart from the establishment and allowance of God. The problem is that there have been some very bad kings and there have been some very bad rulers. People like Nebuchadnezzar himself, who stole items from the temple of God, who deported a whole bunch of people, who crushed all opponents. Or like closer to Paul's time, Emperor Nero of Rome, who is infamously said to have used Christians as torches to light up his garden at night, lighting them on fire. Or leaders like Robespierre in the 18th century in France, who killed tens of thousands under the guillotine during the French Revolution. Or a ruler like Joseph Stalin, who, under whose regime millions and millions of people died in Russia. Or like Pol Pot, who just in four years of dictatorship in Cambodia caused the decimation of one-fourth of the population of that country. And the list goes on and on and on. There have been terrible kings, terrible rulers who have done awful things. So how do we deal with the fact that the Bible says that God is in control over all kings and in control over all kingdoms? That there is no authority that's not under his establishment. How is this good news for us? There are two aspects that we have to learn to see how this really is good news. One, we have to learn that we can trust that God is powerful to overcome all opposition. And two, we have to learn that we can trust that God's plan is better than our plan. So this is good news in the first instance because it firmly establishes that God is in control, that there is no one who can stop God's plan and God's purposes in the world. He is more powerful than any human leader or any force in the entire world. This is good news for us when we see those who are in power and we are impressed by how powerful they are. We're tempted to think that they are the ones who are ultimately in control. Nebuchadnezzar, Nero, Stalin, Pol Pot. But here's the thing, none of them can stop the work of God in the world. The history of China in the second half of the 20th century is a powerful illustration of this. At the middle of the 20th century, Western Christian missionaries were kicked out of the country, and it was estimated that there were about 700,000 Christians in China. And during the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution in China, tens of millions of people in China died. And in particular, the Christian church was targeted. What those in power wanted was the total eradication of the Christian church. But that's not what happened at all. In fact, quite the opposite is what happens. Despite very powerful people leading the country with fierce strictness, trying to stop the work of God, the church in China grew in the midst of that. It grew significantly in the midst of that. Today, the number of Christians in China is massive. The Chinese government gives an official count of 23 million Christians, but that is actually a probably substantially low number. News outlets like BBC and Washington Post estimate more like 100 million Christians in China. One writer pointed out the significance of that. He says that means that there very well might be more practicing Christians in China today than there are members of the Communist Party in China today. No one can stop the work of God. No matter how powerful, 
no matter how hard they try, no one can stop the work of God. He is in control. He is more powerful, more powerful than King of Kings, Nebuchadnezzar, more powerful than any ruler who will come after Nebuchadnezzar. God is the one who is in control over every king, over every kingdom. There is no one that can stop his plan. This is also good news because it means that we can trust God's purposes even when we don't understand. God's plan is better than our plan. And sometimes God makes it very clear why he's doing what he's doing and what he's doing. So Daniel and his friends were able to listen to the prophets, to listen to Isaiah and Jeremiah and others in their day to say this is why this is happening. We can see that the reason they're in exile right now is because they have turned away from God. They have sinned against God and and gone to worship other gods, and that's why God has given them over to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. That's why they're in exile. So they had a very clear understanding of why they were there. Now, many times we don't get to know exactly how what is happening fits in with God's plan. But more important than knowing how it fits in God's plan or why it's happening is knowing who. Because when we know who is in control, when we know that God is the one who is on the throne, that he is in control, he's the true king, then that is enough for us. Knowing who is in control is much more important than knowing why something is happening or how it fits in the plan of God. I saw this great uh, hidden camera video of a NASCAR driver, professional driver, uh, Jeff Gordon, pulling this prank on uh, a, um, an unsuspecting journalist. Uh, the journalist had seen a similar kind of video and called it out as fake, saying it was a, a stunt driver and actors and it wasn't a real kind of thing. And so uh, they were going to uh, show him what it was really like to be in a scary car ride situation like this. So he uh, dressed up as a taxi cab driver, goes to pick this guy up at his uh, um, hotel, and then it's what turns into a normal everyday taxi ride suddenly turns into a high-speed police chase. And this guy is grabbing the handles and he's shouting, stop, 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 no, just let me out. This is not going to work. This is a terrible idea. He thinks he's going to die, right? He's, he's totally out of control of the situation. He is absolutely terrified because he doesn't know who this guy is. He doesn't know what is happening. He doesn't know why this is happening. He is absolutely petrified. Now, finally, at the end, when, when they stop the car, they pull it into this garage, and uh, he's able to see what has happened. Um, you'll see it in a moment here. Sorry, I got a little bit ahead of myself. It's kind of fun to watch. But So finally, they pull into the, the, the warehouse, and confetti's flying down. Uh, Jeff Gordon comes out of the car, opens his door, and tells him who he is, and then it totally changes his perspective on the entire thing, right? He just thought his life was on the line. He was going to die because this madman was at the, meal dri- at the wheel driving around like crazy. And now suddenly he realizes, oh, this whole thing was just a prank. There's a professional race car driver driving me around. Now think about this. Imagine how different that ride would have been from the very beginning if he knew who the driver was. Right? You could actually enjoy it. Kind of loosen up on the grab handles a little bit. Stop shouting for him to stop. I'm, he's not trying to kill me. I'm not going to die. He knows what he's doing. There might be scary moments. There might be times when he's not so sure that this is a good idea. But he knows who's at the, driving, who's at the helm here. He knows that there is a, a skilled professional driver who's going to get him uh, to his place. Daniel 4 gives us eyes to see who's in the driver's seat of history. It allows us to see that there is a good God who's a powerful God who is in control over this entire thing. So instead of clinging to those grab handles, we can kind of loosen up a little bit. Instead of shouting in fear and terror, we can kind of calm our voices a little bit. There will be times when we are still confused. There will be times when we are 
afraid. There will be times when we don't know what's happening. But we're able to live a life of trust in God. Here's the big picture for today. God is in control over the entire earth, even when it doesn't look like it. Even when we don't understand, we can trust him always. No one can stop his plan. No one can stop his purposes. And his plan is better than our plan. So how do we respond? Well, first and foremost, we should praise him. This is really good news. It's it's an incredible privilege to know that there is a God who is on the throne in heaven and control over all of human history who is good and who is powerful and who loves us and who will do what is right. It is great joy to be able to put our hope and our confidence in him and, and trust in his great plan. It's great peace to be able to know him, to trust him, to do what's right, and to, to continue his work, to be able to rest in that. God is on the throne. This is really good news. We should erupt in praise for his name. And then secondly, knowing this, we get to share this with others. We get to share this great news. We get to tell our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers who's driving. We get to tell them that there is a God in heaven who is in control, who is good. In a chaotic situation, in a difficult season, we can look and see, yes, let's recalibrate our thinking. God is the one who's truly king. No matter what happens around us, no matter who else becomes president, as Zach shared earlier, We know the one who's the true king. He always has been king, and he always will be king, and we can trust him to do what's right. Pray with me. God, I thank you for the ways that you confirm throughout history that you are indeed the true king, that you are indeed in control. God, we rest in that truth. I pray that the actions that we do every single day and the words that we speak and the tone of our voices will reflect the reality that you are in the throne. Allow us to loosen up our grip a little bit, to change the volume of our voice a little bit, and to have peace and knowing that you are on the throne. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.